Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, your resource for science-based training and nutrition, data-driven coaching, and education-focused content. Before we get into this podcast, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen and learn with me so that you can apply what you are about to learn, take my strategies, use these tools, and finally have some serious methods to see sustainable success with your physique, your mind, and your life. This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. Today, we dive into July's research roundup uh, with our very own CSO, Chief Science Officer of Tailored Coaching Method, Dr. Brandon Roberts. These are something that we do on a monthly basis. Um, Usually, the blog comes out the first week of the month, and then the second week of the month, we do a podcast reviewing that blog. Every single month, Brandon chooses two to three studies that he is going to review um, and quote-unquote round up. So one thing you'll take away from any type of podcast really any content from other research reviewers or researchers like Brandon is that it takes a lot of skill to actually read research reviews. It's something we talked about in this podcast. You know, I've been coaching and in the fitness industry in some way, shape or form for the last nine years, almost a decade. And I've read my fair share of PubMed articles, researches, studies, all these different things. And to this day, I can honestly say that I still do not have the skill to fully get everything out of a study that it takes. Like I don't have that much skill because it is such a uh, high level of skill that it takes to really abstract everything from a study and be able to practically apply it. Um, And it takes hours at that. This is why I think research reviews are so valuable, whether you're subscribed to Mass or Alan Aragon's research review or weightology.net, or you just wait for these every month to get a couple from us. Um, It's really important to listen to actual researchers who also have coaching experience, discuss these studies and put them into practical terms so you can apply them the right way. Because sometimes average are different than individuals. And what that means is that if we get some kind of average result from a study, a big group study, that's not always going to translate directly into an individual circumstance. But the context and the methods and the strategies and the tools and the things that we learn, the insights we get from the study on these averages does apply. And we have to extract those lessons and implement it the right way. So um, that's just a quick rant on why I think it's so important to listen to things like this. But today we're going to dive into two specific studies. The first one is uh, wearing a weight vest to accelerate fat loss. Um, And whether that's uh, worth it or not, uh, there's going to be two groups, one with next to no weight added, one with weight added. Um, And it's more than just a matter of burning more calories. As you will see, there is a hormonal response, and I think it's really interesting. So you'll like that one. The second one is on betaine. Betaine is – a really popular supplement. Um, I'm going to butcher this, but it's it's another name for trimethylglycine. Um, it can be found in some foods, as most people know, but it is uh, mainly – it's best as a supplement, and it is geared towards performance. So there are some studies showing performance benefits, 3RM benefits, body comp benefits, um, but it's very mixed. Uh, research is kind of a ping-pong effect. Like there's always going to be studies going back and forth, and this is why so many studies have to be done on one single thing for it to be uh, – truly evident of what is correct. You can't say anything indefinitely until there's multiple studies on a single topic. Um, so we're going to dive into that one and talk about that. And we also dive into some random topics like body fat measurements and, and what the most accurate way is. Uh, 
I think we talk about genetic potential. That might be after the podcast airs. So I apologize if you don't hear that. But you're going to hear some banter from us about random research topics, random research ideas, random studies, um, things that we notice from studies and how to apply those properly. So um, without any further ado, I'm going to jump into this episode. But guys, do me a huge favor. If you like this episode, leave, leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It makes the world of a difference for us. And if you enjoy this specific episode, make sure you post a screenshot on your Instagram story and tag myself at cody.boomboom and tag Brandon at brob underscore 21. Uh, both those will be in the show notes. Uh, make sure you tag us both. We want to thank you for listening. We want to share it on our story as well. And without any further ado, let's jump into the research roundup. So today we are going to dive into July's research roundup. Um, full transparency, this is round two recording this. We recorded this before the roundup was actually finished being written. Um, but Cody is not very tech savvy and, uh, I was trying to make space. It's so funny cause the, the whole cloud thing confuses me, man. I, so like I have a phone, an Apple watch, which I never wear anymore. We have an iPad cause we get like movies and stuff for my daughter. And then I have an mm-hmm. iMac at home, but then I have a, a different MacBook at work. So I have one in the office plugged into the monitor. So I literally have two laptops, one Mac, but it's just, it's, so the cloud is connected to everything. So my space kept filling up and I'm like, I'm not even like saving many things. So I started deleting a bunch of podcasts I've already recorded. And of course I deleted yours by accident. And little do I know, I have thousands and thousands and thousands of pictures on my phone from like content that Travis sends me. I post and then I never look at it again. Mm-hmm. And it just fills up all the computers. And I had no huh. idea that it was just like dropping them over as I take pictures. So um, I figured that out. So I'm going to keep my photos to a minimum now um, and I won't delete our podcast ever again. But um, this is actually kind of a blessing in disguise, like you said, because another BTN study came out. So um, we're going to dive into two studies today, Um, one with the weight vest and one with the BTN. So uh, man, I'm just going to let you kind of take it from the start. We'll, We'll link the blog in this uh, the show notes of this podcast. So if you're listening and you'd rather see it in writing, you want to see the, the, the graphs that, uh, Brandon puts together with the content, um, click the link, check it out. We always get a ton of great feedback on those. So I know you'll like it. Um, but without me ranting anymore, man, take it away on the first one. Okay. So the first study, like I said, is a, a weighted vest study. Um, and this was a, uh, proof of concept randomized clinical trial. So it's, not a full clinical trial. It's kind of like powered down a little bit. Maybe they didn't have enough people or something, or maybe they're trying to figure out if it'll work or not. And so that's exactly what they did. They, um, they took middle, kind of like middle-aged, obese um, participants, no training history, um, just kind of your run-of-the-mill um, Americans. And they randomized them to a weighted vest of 11% body weight or 1% body weight. Uh, to put that in perspective, you know, if you're 200 pounds, 1% is going to be like two pounds. So you're basically going, going to be wearing like a plastic vest with nothing in it. And then, <laughs> so it just kind of be on like a, a shirt or something. Um, and then 11%, obviously, is a good chunk of weight. So, you know, 200 pound person, 22 pounds, um, which adds up. And then anywhere in between, I think it fits well with, um, what we've seen people doing in practice because most vets, vests are between 10 and 20 pounds. So you have a nice range there. Um, but what they were trying to figure out was if it would help weight loss. Um, so they had these participants uh, wear the vest for 
about nine hours a day um, for three weeks straight. And what they're looking at was fat mass, body weight, and fat-free mass. So they kind of, they did, I think it was a BIA um, uh, assessment. And it turns out, as you would expect, the, um, the weighted vest, the heavier vest, lost about one and a half percent body weight. Um, and the lighter vest lost about 0.31% or something. So very minimal. Um, and to put that into perspective, again, with actual weights, uh, you're looking at about two kilos for the, um, the high loaded vest group. So basically it worked. It, it helped them lose weight in, you know, not that much time, you know, three weeks of wearing vests is not hard and they weren't doing any specific activity, right? It's not like someone told them to go, you know, start exercising. Um, so in combination, they wanted to look at physiological markers and the major one that they mentioned and that they've been studying for a while is leptin. So when we think about leptin, if you had no leptin at all, you would be super duper hungry and it has been shown to cause obesity basically in, in mice. Um, so you would expect it kind of correlates with fat mass. So the more fat mass you have and leptin you have, it's supposed to stop you from gaining more weight, uh, but it doesn't quite do that. In the opposite direction, really lean, like physique competitors, if you track their leptin, it'll kind of drop off over time. And then once they start after the competition gaining weight, it'll come back up. Um, so what they saw was kind of matching the body weight data. High load vest lost um, a more lost more leptin or reduced leptin. Low load vest also reduced, but not as much. So the physiology there kind of matches, which is good. Um, now, the idea behind this, and then we'll get into kind of practical application from this, the idea behind the leptin um, cascade, and these researchers specifically, is called the gravito, gravitostat, gravitostat, always mess that one up. Um, and that is when we weigh ourselves, the bones, well, our bones, send out some kind of signal to tell the rest of our body that you know, something's going on and it should decrease like the food intake that we have. Um, now in this trial, they didn't do any nutrition at all. So they have like no idea what they're eating. Um, so we don't know if it played any type of role there. We also don't really have um, any good data showing what the gravitostat actually is. Like it hasn't been identified. It's just kind of like this theory. Um, but in mice, going back to kind of about four or five years ago, I think, uh, what they did was they implanted little metal balls into mice and they found that they lost weight um, and they uh, created this theory back then. So this was the, a proof of concept in humans to say, is it, is it there and does it work and can we apply it? Um, now, the interesting thing, which I go into detail in the blog, is that when you um, mess with mice, so I've done quite a bit of my, like rodent research. When you mess with mice do, and do surgery on them, they don't really eat. Like they're kind of like humans. You know, you go to surgery, you're not really hungry for probably a week, depending on how severe the surgery is. If you imagine someone implanting, you know, 20% of your body weight into you in terms of a metal ball, you probably wouldn't eat very much. Um, so you have to kind of keep that in mind. When we're thinking about this theory. 
so that was that was the kind of the, the main finding though was that indeed um, you wear heavier vest you lose more weight and a big and a big to try to kind of like simplify this leptin thing because I think um, I don't know if you've read the book the hungry brain but I've had that guy on the podcast as well and it's just a very interesting uh, realm. I mean, it can be really confusing, especially when we think, because based on this, what you're saying is as we wear this weight vest, we lose more weight. It actually kind of suppresses hunger a little bit because we're masking that weight loss, right? Yep, that's right. Which is a good thing for fat loss. However, the weird thing is, is like, okay, well, how come somebody keeps gaining weight? Because if they gain weight, their bones should notice that weight change and we should send a signal saying, hey, stop eating. You know, uh, you're gaining too much weight and, and why doesn't it work like that? Does that make sense? Why doesn't it work like that? But it does with a weight vest artificially. Yes. So we, they don't really know. Um, that's kind of the, the theory behind it. They have to still figure it out or someone does. Um, I will say in trials, clinical trials with obesity, trying to stop obesity, right? They've taken leptin and they've just straight up injected it. And most of the time it doesn't do anything. Um, which is kind of surprising because if, if you got the signal, you'd be, be like, oh, I'm not hungry anymore, reduce food, lose weight, uh, viola, right? Magical pill. Uh, but it doesn't work like that. So I think there's a lot to be kind of teased out in all of this theory and, and even in practice too, before we can do too much. Um, I actually have not read The Hungry Brain, so I'll put that on my list because I know um, Stefan's good. Yeah, it's a good, it's a really good book. It's very interesting. It's it's so in what I kind of took away from it, especially with studies like this, being that it kind of shows the opposite of what we see in obese individuals, um, is that a lot of obesity is is truly psychological. And I think that's why there are some people who have these hundred pound transformations, but mentally they change as an individual too, right? Their lifestyle changes, their habits change, their work changes, their relationship changes, something changes where it just like clicks. Um, mm -hmm. Would you agree? I think it's like a, a big piece of it is just that psychological nature. Yeah. And if um, some clients say they go, you know, they change their life and they go lose a bunch of weight, new job things, and then they go back home. So you'll see that in like college kids, especially. Yeah. You'll see them revert, right, to their old habits because they're in the old environment and their old, uh, you know, thinking patterns and things like that. So, um, I mean, that's psychologically, it's a big deal. Yeah. And we see that. I mean, we see that with athletes. We see that with people in the military. Mm -hmm. um, I have yeah. multiple people who are no longer in the military that they always talk about that with me because like, so I have a couple neighbors, for example, who are, who are ex-military and they're always coming over and talking to me because they know I got the equipment in the gym and I'm a trainer. Um, but they used to be in great shape. And then when they came back to normal life, quote unquote, it, it became more difficult because the, the habits changed. Um, so, so with this study for practical application, um, I think like wearing a wave vest nine hours a day is pretty crazy. Um, you know, like I could, <laughs> I could probably do it because yeah. I, like I, I'm isolated. Like I work in my office. The only people that interact with me or work with me throughout the day wouldn't judge me for wearing a wave vest all day. Probably mm -hmm. laugh at me, but that's okay. Um, and I, I'm in a gym, so but even for me, I wouldn't even want to do it. It's just like uncomfortable, you know, but um, point being is like for somebody who isn't like me, what would your practical application be? Like try to, do you think there's even an, a benefit of saying like, Hey, just for one hour a day wear it, or Hey, just in your workouts, wear it like, um, and it could be a, you know, if, if, if five pounds makes a difference, even that little bit, like you could do, 
you know, your bench press performance wouldn't suffer too much from wearing a five pound weight vest, you know, um, with a big one with all the plates in it or whatever, and you've got 30 pounds, then all of a sudden you're awkward, your positioning's off, you're not going to lift really well. But do you think there's any merit or benefit to saying like, hey, if you're going into a fat loss phase, you want to wear it for an hour or two a day, it, it's worth it? Or is that just splitting hairs? Um, so I've used it and I think it, I've, I've had a couple clients use it over the years. I think it's a, a good um, boost, call it like a mini boost, right? So when we're um, trying to get meet um, up, right, we tell people to go on walks or just like have breaks and stuff. And so that would be like the perfect time to wear it is just an hour to a day. Um, in the blog, I put like a ramping protocol. But if you want to just get some extra caloric benefit from expenditure, you know, you could wear it for a couple hours a day. Maybe you've been dieting for a while and you need something to get you over the plateau if you use it then. Um, physique athletes have used it in the past. Um, there's some indication that it helps retain lean mass, which could be a huge benefit, you know, if you're getting really lean. Yeah. Um, if you're kind of more, you know, kind of uh, have a little more fat on you, that might not be as big of a problem. Um, but I think it, it I'm, I plan to use it in my fat loss phases and I recommend people at least try it. Do you, the, the idea of it helping retain muscle, is that, do you think that's because of that same signal coming from, I think you called the gravistat from the bones? Yeah, so I don't think so. I think it's literally like an, um, just extra gravity pulling on your muscles, making them work harder. I don't know that's any type of signal because um, they haven't looked at signals in muscle, which would be interesting. But um, I think it's literally just like you weigh more. So everything's harder. Got it. Um, and the last question on this one before we move on, do you think that like speaking of people like, you know, throwing it on a little bit in the phallus phase, this could even be something that it's like as diet fatigue, like for some of my clients, I notice like when diet fatigue kind of accumulates, um, it's different for everybody. Some people it's just like irritability. Some people it's performance, you know, it's some people it's sleep. Um, uh, but there's some people where it's just cravings. Like they just start craving things. Do you think this is a merit to say like, Hey, we're not done with the diet. We can take diet breaks, but that's only going like, to be a bandaid for so long. Um, and maybe we implement a weight vest and that can try to combat those hunger signals. Yeah. I mean, that, so that, that's the, the kind of questionable thing, but I think it's worth again, trying. Um, and if it allows you to, you know, have whatever you crave because it's an extra hundred, 200 calories on top of your normal macros and you can now eat a you know, small piece of cake or something. Got it. Um, so, yeah, I think you know if it allows you to eat a little bit more, um, it could be worth it for sure. Got it. Okay. Um, cool. I think that's a. Uh, I mean, it's a pretty good study. I I, I want to bring up one little thing. Just another book. I'm curious. Have you ever read the placebo effect? I have not read that one, but I did go down a placebo nocebo research hole one time <laughs> it was kind of interesting okay so my question do, do you believe in the placebo effect like do you think it's pretty legit yeah i mean and, and I'm, I'm again a little bit out of my wheelhouse but i would say it has a bigger effect in some people just like exercise and certain nutrition does than others um so it's it's worth trying to elicit a placebo effect sometimes yeah so once I heard, actually, I think Greg Knuckles was the first one I heard talk about this. I think it was an article years ago um, where there was like two groups, one had placebo, one actually had steroids. Mm -hmm. And 
I think the groups were matched in muscle growth or something like that. Um, and, yeah. and my first thought is like, damn, I wish somebody gave me fake steroids <laughs> so I could just grow and not actually have to take them. Um, but, uh, but that was where I started kind of digging into it. And I read some of this book called The Placebo Effect where they go through, I mean, they go through uh, disease prevention. They go through like, even like injury uh, surgeries and like not actually doing the surgery they said they were doing and that the person is like, feels like they're fixed. So mm-hmm. I believe that, you know, the more educated you get on a topic, the harder it is to have that placebo effect work because it doesn't matter how many times you tell me that this supplement is going to do this wonderful thing. Like I'm, I'm going to dig in the research. I'm going to know what I've known, but I do think that for some individuals who are hiring coaches that are like, I don't, I don't give a shit about the, the deep science roots. Like I don't need to know about that stuff. Um, you know, things like diet breaks have an even bigger effect because there's that placebo effect of like, oh, this is, this is helping my diet. This is making the diet last longer. This is uh, recovering my body along the process. Um, and I think the weight vest could be the same thing. You know, like, okay, I'm going to wear this weight vest because hunger signals will lower. That's going to make me adhere better. And they probably will adhere better because their mindset is of, this is going to blow my hunger response. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, if, that, if you get that, that's awesome. Um, I did another benefit of, of deleting the, the previous podcast. I did a little research into athletes <laughs> because I was like, all right, this is essentially just weighting your body. There's got to be some athlete studies. And, and sure enough, there's a systematic re- review. Um, I can't remember what it looks at weighting athletes and training, right? So they have this system called the exogen system. Um, and it's literally like pieces of armor you put on that help you like move better. Uh, but it does have some performance benefit for athlete. It looks like too. So, you know, that just kind of helps, um, the proof of concept. Sounds like, a um, like halo. <laughs> like that. It, it looks like it too. You should go Google exogen. It looks pretty, pretty weird. That's cool though. I like that. Well, cool. Let's, uh, let's dive into the next one. If you're ready, unless you have anything else to, to bring up about that one. No, I think, I think that one's pretty simple. I mean, um, I write these blogs so that you hopefully can go read it and then try to analyze it yourself and then read my version. Um, and if you're short on time, just read my version. Um, but it's a kind of a learning tool. And so that's the, the goal with these. Yeah. I think it's so, super helpful. So man. I, I really like them and, and not to cut you off, but I think that, you know, I was <laughs> listening to, uh, I think it was stronger by science again. And you and I have had this conversation as well about, how it's actually like a skill to read research because even mm-hmm. somebody like me who I've been in this industry for nine years now, and I've read my fair share of actual studies. Um, and the, the difference between me reading the actual study and then me reading your review or Eric or Eric or Greg or Mike Zordos or any of those guys reviews or Alan Aragon, any of them, it's unbelievably different. And that's coming from somebody who's extremely experienced in the industry, you know? So I think that um, for things like this, it's so helpful for people because if somebody as educated as me still struggles with the skill of reading literal research, it just goes to show how difficult it actually is. And I don't, I don't think a lot of people will admit that like it's, it's hard to read research, but it, it really is difficult. Like it's just to pick it apart. And I mean, if you thoroughly look through a study, how, how long does that take you? You think probably hours, right? Yeah, I mean, to, to just read a study and feel good about it an hour, um, to analyze it like this, um, multiple hours, because you have to, you know, read other studies, references, and check things, and, you know, you're looking at probably like eight, eight, eight or 
nine hours for a couple of studies like this. Um, and I'll also add that, um, even graduate students, right? So I mentor PhD students, master students, it takes them a really long time. Like by the time they graduate, they can usually get to like 60 to 70% of this. If they're really good, they could probably do a similar job. Um, but it just takes so long, so much practice, like so much just effort practice, comparing notes and, and reading. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy, man. All right. I'll let you get into the next one. Now I just wanted to throw that out there so people could <laughs> <Yeah>. appreciate this. <laughs> right. Um, okay. So the next one is on a kind of hot supplement right now. Um, so it's betaine. And I pulled this study from, I believe it was 2013 by um, Professor Kaliba. So it's C-H-O-L-E-W-A. Takes, takes a minute to memorize how to say that one. Uh, but they, but it, what he did was he recruited uh, about 23 trained males. And these were kind of heavy dudes. They're about 86 kilos, had four or five years of training experience. Uh, and he put them on a training program for six weeks. And then he, so before that, he randomized them to either placebo or betaine. And it was 2.5 grams per day, which is pretty standard for um, betaine studies, usually two to three grams, somewhere in there. So we had them trained for six weeks. It's a very typical um, program, four days a week, kind of upper lower split, uh, compound movements, three sets of eight to 12, and then like four sets in the last uh, microcycle. Um, and then he measured uh, muscle size through cross-sectional area. And that was actually a circumference measurement. So it wasn't like a muscle biopsy or anything or an ultrasound. It was an old school formula. I think it's from the 70s where you plug in some numbers and you kind of get a cross-sectional area. So not the best way to measure it, but still correlated with kind of the updated methods. Uh, he also did skin calipers, which is nice because everybody has access to those and you can usually learn how to do it or have your friend do it in a reasonable amount of time if you want to check your um, body fat percentage or something. So he did that too. And then he compared the groups. So the results are pretty easy to interpret again. Um, the betaine group actually gained a little bit more lean body mass. Um, if we look at the fat mass, the betaine group actually lost, lost fat mass, so body fat percentage by about one to 2% somewhere in there. And the placebo group great gained body fat. So they were actually kind of indicates they might've been in a little bit of a surplus. Um, so betaine group is kind of winning for right now. Uh, when they, when he looked at cross-sectional area, he did the thigh and the arms, right? So everybody wants big arms. Um, in the thigh, there weren't any differences in cross-sectional area, but in the arms there were, and they favored the betaine group. So that helps us kind of interpret the lean body mass, even though it's in, you know, not a perfect measurement, um, to say, well, okay, there seems to be a benefit in this study for betaine. And then he did something else. He analyzed the training volume, right? So we know training volume needs to increase for hypertrophy for the most part in some manner, sets, reps, frequency, something has to occur to, to gain muscle. Um, and that data was kind of split back and forth where the first microcycle, which was two weeks, the betaine group um, did more volume, 
the second microcycle, another two weeks, the placebo group, group did more volume. And then the third one, they were about even. So it, it's hard to tell exactly why the betaine group gained muscle and basically recomped. Because again, these are fairly well-trained um, participants. And, and so it, I kind of scratched my head at that and I'm like, okay. So then I, I did some other research and you know this is back in 2013 or so and it's there's been a, a ton of studies before this and after this. I think there's probably about I'd say 10 to 12 betaine studies to help us kind of figure out you know is it helpful or is it not helpful. Um, and so Kaliva also did a study in females more recently and he found that the same dosage um, I think it was a little bit longer of a study, didn't really have any effect. So that was kind of like, okay, well, maybe there are sex differences, but even then that's kind of, um, you know, kind of take that with a grain of salt. There's some other studies that did like no exercise and they gave a big dose. So they gave like six grams for 12 weeks, no obese people. And they didn't see any differences between it and placebo. So that's study. And a couple others like that tell us, well, we probably need to be exercising to see a benefit. And based on another study that just came out, so it's uh, Moro et al. 2020, I think it was like June 6th or 7th, um, that use CrossFit people. So they train kind of concurrently. They do a lot of different things. Um, she actually found a increase in three rep max in the squat, but no other um, body comp benefits or other performance benefits. So we have this kind of back and forth, the seesaw um, of data, and you really have to be careful how you're reading the literature and how you're interpreting it, because there's, there's enough evidence either way to say, yes, obviously it helps, you know, or on the other hand, it's like, hey, we should probably be a little skeptical and maybe wait. Um, so that's kind of what literature is now. Uh, now, it is used in livestock, pigs. Um, it's been used in, in livestock for a long time. Um, I think it's like 50 years or so. And that has been shown to increase lean mass. So they gain more, more muscle, which is kind of what we eat. Um, so there's also a good rationale for it. And mechanistically, we don't know exactly what happens, but it seems to be a um, kind of osmolytic effect to where you can handle more stress. Um, so that would make me think, well, if it's, you know, if it's helping me handle more stress, that's probably more training volume or frequency or something. And maybe that's how it works to allow me to do more training and grow faster, better type thing. Um, so that's, that's kind of it for the study. It's, it's again, a fairly simple study, but very interesting for sure. Uh, I have a few questions on it. The, yeah, the first one is to provide some, uh, some deeper context. Can you explain the, um, I don't know if chemical or molecular, uh, maybe molecular is the right word, like the actual process, like what is it doing? You know, like uh, similar to like when we take creatine, we know there's, there's some stuff going on with ATP and so on and so forth. Um, I would love to know, like for, for people listening, Two things. One, besides supplementation, what are the foods that we can get this from if we can? Um, and then two, what is the actual thing happening inside of our body that is potentially causing these performance increases? Yeah, so um, the foods are pretty simple. So beets, um, 
our big one, spinach, has some betaine in it. Um, wheat bran, I think. And, um, oh, there's a what? Wheat germ. So, you know, remember people taking wheat germ back in the day? Oh, yeah. so if you had a, a hundred grams of wheat germ, you could almost get to your dose per day. Now that actually has a lot of calories, but, um, you know, it's probably best to just supplement it like straight up cause it's cheap. As, as you mentioned last time, it's pretty cheap to buy. Um, so you could, if you have a diverse diet and include some of those foods that I talked about, you could get some betaine, but you probably want to supplement it. Now, the mechanism is kind of tricky. So there's two main things, um, one more research than the other, but the, the, the more interesting one for me, at least, is the impact on protein or di dietary protein and protein degradation. So it seems to, there's like one or two studies on this, seems to um, lower the amount of protein degradation, so muscle breakdown in this case, and increase um, nitrogen retention. So dating back to the MPS studies, um, nitrogen muscle protein synthesis are correlated. Um, so maybe we see a little bit of an MPS bump, but that study hasn't really been done directly. So we don't know that for sure. Um, it's also a precursor to creatine or cre and creatinine. Um, so it could be, because there's one study that compares creatine and betaine, and they find that like, creatine blows it out of the water, basically, uh, which you would expect. But when they combined them, so they did a, a creatine, a betaine, and then a combination. The combination, we would hope, would be synergistic. It would help even more, but it didn't. Um, so there might be something in the creatine precursor pool that is occurring. Um, and then finally, kind of the one that I don't know as much about because I just didn't read as much, but it's a methyl donor. So it's, uh, it's actually called trimethylglycine. Um, so it has methyl groups that can donate to other things in your body. So there's a couple different things they're looking at. Um, nothing clear cut yet though. And you mentioned beet. Is this why beetroot juice is so popular? So no. Beetroot, okay. yeah, we'll, we'll I think we need to cover beetroot juice in a, few, in a future one, um, even though it's pretty well covered. Um, but this does make an argument for having beets in your diet even stronger because um, there's some plenty of aerobic data for beetroot juice. There's even to be beginning to be some resistance training improvements seen by taking beetroot juice. So it's kind of like, well, maybe, you know, we need to start eat more beets. Yeah. We have some endurance athletes that supplement with beetroot juice and love it. And, and we've recommended it really to only them. Like there's not really many other people we've recommended it to. Um, but I was just curious if it was, I mean, what's the actual, uh, I feel like I've read this, but I'm, I'm, it's, it's drawing my mind. Um, it's, if it's not betaine, what is the actual substance inside of beetroot juice that makes it so beneficial or do they know? Um, yeah. So it's the nitrates in it. Oh, there you go. Yeah. 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 So think about like um, blood flow pump, like yep. the old school nitrate. Yeah. There's just a large dose of that. Got it. Got it. So with this study, um, one of the things that uh, kind of like caught my attention is that um, arm circumference grew, the rest didn't. Um, this was eight weeks long or 12 weeks long? Six weeks. Yeah. Six it's weeks. So not very long. long. Yes. Yeah. So my question would be like, okay, betaine for muscle growth in a six-week setting is probably 
unless you're a guy who wants bigger biceps. So every single guy listening to this podcast, um, <laughs> it's probably splitting hairs. Um, however, do you think that there would have been more cross-sectional area growth if the study was 12, 24, 36 weeks versus a six-week period? I Probably. Um, so the longer you go, the more chance you have to tease your effect out. Um, six weeks is, is not very long, even for an exercise like science study. Most of them are the good ones, 8, 12, 16 if you're lucky. Um, but if we compare it to like any other supplement, right? If you take betalanine for six weeks, probably not going to see that much of an effect, right? You take creatine for six weeks, you might see a little bit of an effect, but, but I'm not even sure in as little as six weeks, you'll see much. Um, so we have to kind of keep that in mind too, that you would need to take it for a while to see a cumulative effect. And I think that's one of those things that if, if for the committed people, it's, it's just, I say like a chance you have to take, but I mean, it's pretty, I, I don't remember what, cause I take it, but I think it was like 20 bucks and it lasts me like two or three months. Like it's a, in the bulk supplement bag, you know, it's pretty easy to get on Amazon for cheap. And to me, I'm like, well, if, even if my quad grew, like my circumference of my quad and hamstring grew a quarter of an inch because of this over eight months, I'd be stoked. I'd be so pumped. So it's like, and that's on top of everything else I'm already doing. So for some people, it's, it's really easy um, to just throw it in. It's like, why not? You know, it might give some benefit, but um, I do think it's interesting that it seems like, and you correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like almost each study is kind of showing different benefits or none at all. So it's like, little bit of growth. Oh, never mind. Not much growth, but the three RM went up. Oh, wait, never mind. Not much strength growth, but there's this other thing and, or it's just completely neutral. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, you know, the the evidence is definitely mixed and I would say, you know, it's not going to be your first supplement you take, right? It's probably going to be your fourth or fifth, maybe somewhere in there, depending on, you know, if you're counting protein, uh, whey protein or something. Um, but it is pretty cheap. And if you want that 1%, one and a half percent over a, a while, then it's probably worth try, at least trying. I would agree. I think for, for everybody listening to, if you're not, if you're thinking about this and you're not taking creatine, start there. Cause it's yeah. probably the most well-researched supplement there is besides caffeine, maybe. Yeah. Those are my two kind of like, um, in the, the con ed that you saw that I did for the team yesterday or, whenever um those are my kind of top two is creatine and caffeine because caffeine is a supplement that can be used for all kinds of things like psychologically fat loss um, performance boost um so i I put that up there with creatine just because um and then you have like the second tier where you have your your beta alanine your citrulline malate um there's a couple other little things you could probably throw in there and then you know you have your kind of third tier where you get into um, things like betaine and, and maybe some other off lesser known supplements is what I call them. Right. Um, I'm curious just because we're on the topic of research methods and everything. What do you typically use in the lab to test body fat and muscle mass? Like what's, I mean, I guess like what's the gold standard? Cause I've talked about this uh, a bit uh I think it's James Krieger has a really good article series on this too, but like most body fat scanning measurements, tests and all that stuff are pretty inaccurate. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and I always try to tell people, you know, like even like calipers are great because you can do them. They're easy. Like, but have the same person do it with the same mm-hmm. formula on the same day of the week, every single time. You know what I mean? Like keep it very standard and don't focus on your body fat percentage. Focus on the trend of where you're going. And I think that's really important, but um, it's something that I've always been curious in because if it's so inaccurate, you know, how do we hold uh, why do we hold them at a higher standard inside of research? Is it because they just solely lose using MRI or, or like or ultrasound or what's the deal? Um, so it kind of depends what you're trying to look at. So if, if it's lean mass, right. If we just want to like whole body lean mass, um, you know, you can do a DEXA. That's probably what most people would consider the best. Um, now you can do multiple compartment models. So like if you do a DEXA and a BIA, so then you can get um, a hydration effect, right? So you can tease out hydration from lean mass. Um, if you throw in a bod pod or underwater weighing, you can take a third compartment. Um, so the more compartments generally, the better. Um, three and four kind of, you know, not much of a difference. But if you want to look at, say, muscle hypertrophy in your biceps, right? So then you're going to go with an MRI or an ultrasound because um, you want that more direct effect. You're like, I don't really care if my legs grew because I'm doing arms. Um, so it, it's very context dependent. Uh, but like you mentioned, I think for most people, if you have something at home, it can be a BIA, it can be whatever, uh, you want to focus on that relative change. So if I started at 25% and I saw a body weight decrease and now I'm at 23%, you could probably also use some pictures and say, all right, well, I, I lost some fat mass. Maybe the 25% is not right, but I know I'm doing the right thing that I, if I want to get leaner. Um, so that's, that, again, kind of like what you said. That's what I tell people. I think, like, now that I think about it, too, when we're looking at, I mean, even just looking, I have the blog right here next to your screen, um, and there's the chart on lean body mass, there's a chart on body fat percentage. We're not looking at, oh, that individual is 10% body fat. We're looking at, we saw this decline. So I think, mm-hmm. like, that's another merit to say like, well, it's useful in studies because we're looking at averages, you know, and mm-hmm. in, in, inside of the study, nobody gives a shit if you're eight, nine or 10%. They just care that did body fat percentage drop using a controlled method when we did X, Y, Z, whatever we're studying. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, if, if people do want to look into the body composition measures, uh, James does have a really good, um, I think he even updated it recently, uh, kind of, walk through on all the, the methods and how they compare and stuff. Um, Cause not everybody has the really expensive equipment, right? Like I don't have access to an MRI. Well, that means that I can't really do the gold standard for muscle size because they cost like millions of dollars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I always like, you know, even for me, somebody who is, I, I love, and I've done DEXA, I've done in body, I've done bod pot, I've done all of them just for experimental reasons. Um, but I think the most valuable thing is really just taking daily weight, having an average, taking progress pictures on a biweekly or at least once a month basis. And if you're either a losing a ton of weight or B, you're really trying to build muscle or maintain muscle on cut, do your measurements too, just like girth measurements. Um, and if you have the same tape measure the same way and you like have like what I do is, you know, seven inches above my kneecap. So it's as mm-hmm. accurate as I can get on a consistent basis. Um, that does more than enough. You know, in most cases, I think a body fat percentage really just kind of messes with people's head because certain people, I know guys that uh, look 
way leaner than I do at a higher percentage body fat because genetically they store body fat differently. Um, and some of that, it might actually even be internally around the organs, which isn't necessarily healthy <laughs> by any means, but, but it doesn't show on your abs as much. So like, you know, and I think, I think people forget about that, but I did, uh, we had a, there's a thing here in Seattle. I think it's called Dexa fit. It's like one of their locations where they do that stuff, but they have a, DEXA scan and then right next to it they have I don't think it's an in body but it's very similar to where like you basically stand on this thing and hold these buttons and then it like spins <laughs> you around and there's like yeah. these like lasers and you're like in your underwear just like spinning on this machine it's so weird but they were like hey like uh, basically they wanted me to go do a free test and then write a review <laughs> on my blog and I ended up, I, I, I told them I wasn't going to write the review after my experience, but um, it actually encouraged me to write a blog on body fat scanners. And I cited James and a couple other places too. But uh, I did the, so this was, this was post-surgery. So I hadn't been training, but I just got off crutches. Um, and I was, it was kind of a cool time because I was just about to be able to start lifting again after my mm -hmm. knee surgery. So I go, oh, let's see where my baseline's at. And I did the DEXA scan, and I think it said I was 13.5%, which made sense to me. I hadn't been training for a few months. I wasn't eating perfectly. Um, so I had gained a little bit of body fat from where I was normally. And then I did the in-body thing, and it said I was 22. And I was like, damn, that's over. That's like 9% higher. And I just yeah. literally walked from the DEXA like three feet and jumped in this machine. So like, there's no... You know, I didn't have a meal in between. There wasn't any dehydration happening or anything like that, which I know you can do and kind of throw off the results. Um, mm -hmm. But it just goes to show that like, one, you shouldn't be using different methods. And two, they can be dramatically off. Because I know for a fact I wasn't 22% body fat. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and I mean, I honestly just avoid most like things. I think we had, um, back in my master's, we had an exercise assessment class and they, you know, they asked for volunteers for DEXA. And I was like, yeah, I mean, sure. Like whatever. Nobody wanted to sit there in their like their skivvies. And so I think I, I was pretty lean at the time. I was like eight or 9%, but, um, I had one done before my last competition and that one was like, like 6%, but I was like the time between them too, right? Like 6% at, at one age versus six to 8% at another age is completely different if you're training, right? So, you know, you're, your body fat can shift too after competing. Like you can start holding body fat more like in your stomach or in your blood or something. So there's just so many factors that a number is just like too simple. Yeah, it really is. And at the end of the day, again, like, does it really matter? It's kind of like one of those things, like no. the, the type of people that ask is it's like when somebody comes like, Hey man, what do you bench? It's like, yeah. What's your name? <laughs> right. <laughs> it, it really doesn't matter. So, um, I always, I, I love actually bringing that topic up because I get the question all the time. And I like having that conversation with so many people of being like, what is the significance of this number? Because at some point in time this is where we kind of get into the psychological psychology of this. At some point in time, you heard a number or you saw a number on a machine when you were leaner and you like stuck to that. Cause I even remember when I did a competition I did, I was using calipers and I got down to 4%. I wasn't really 4%. There's no way. Like, um, I mean, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think like humanly possible to get actually to 4% body fat. And this is like Probably four weeks. Not. <laughs> so now granted, like it was going down and that's all I was worried about. But at the time, I mean, I was 21. I was like, 
four percent body fat this is like i was so stoked um <laughs> had different people doing the calipers every other week um but like that stuck in my head for a while because i was like well that's that's my leanest is four percent you know until i was more well educated and i was like that is completely irrelevant especially like as you said as your training age increases it kind of gets washed out but um at some point in time, somebody heard something, somebody read something in men's health about like the best body fat percentage for men, like anything like that. Right. And, or those mm-hmm. charts, charts where they have either like, like endo, meso and ectomorph, and then like the percentages and all those kind of things that you see on Google that just kind of throw people's brain for a loop that are really not based on, I mean, is even the somatotypes, is that even really based on research? Um, psychological research. Okay. Uh, yeah. So there's not really any physiology behind it i'm sure in like 10 years we'll kind of it'll loop back in and be like actually these people have these mutations in their genes or some kind of different protein output that makes them you know hold fat easier but as of right now it's kind of like yeah that was developed for psychology and not physiology but it's you know it's kind of whatever i think it's funny because i remember again years and years and years ago i think it was like when i first did precision nutrition one they had that in there um and i don't know if they even have it in there anymore i mean this is seven years ago eight years ago whatever it was and uh i remember having like endomorph clients and having the recommendation of a low carb diet and i was like oh so if you're endomorph you can't like you have insulin resistance and we have to have low carbs they would lose weight so i was like oh it works and it's like really i just put them in a calorie deficit and they lost weight (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah it's it's interesting just you know the goal a lot of times people get caught up with titles and labels and things. And it's kind of like, if you reach your goal in a healthy way, you're probably going to be okay. Yeah. hundred um, percent. So before we close this one out, I, I want to, um, and, and you don't have to have an answer to this, but do you have any ideas of what you want to do on the next research roundup? Cause I always like kind of giving a teaser and, and letting people get excited. And if you don't have any specific ones picked out, maybe just like what you've been digging into lately. Um, yeah. So I, have been so the next research roundup i think i have a exercise order study picked out um so like what order should you do exercise and does it matter um kind of interesting yeah that one's i actually really like that topic because and this is purely anecdotal bro science like just my experience I find a lot of value in that, like exercise sequencing properly. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily from a standpoint of like, hey, I know for a fact you're going to build more muscle if you do this before this, but more of like controlling fatigue and energy throughout a session and, and maybe like preparing your joints a little bit better by choosing certain things before the next. Um, so I hope this study <laughs> works in my favor, but, um, but I'm excited for that one because that'll be a good topic. Um, yeah, and then the other one is uh... – rapid versus or it's called severe versus moderate uh weight loss basically so the benefits or risks or detriments of rapid weight loss like is there any issues um and that that one so i i read it and then it's a it was a early report and then the final study came out like the long term is like a three-year study so the first year came out and then the, the third year just came out like last week so um, those should nice. be good because we can we can kind of discuss what rate of loss is important and, and what we can expect. Yeah, and how to match that with the right person. Because I get that question, you know, like on the podcast when we do Q and A's, I often use examples of people because somebody asks a question. I'm like, well, you know, in this situation, I did this or this, and I feel like people will grab on to like 
things they hear. So sometimes people are like, well, I heard you talk about like aggressive fat loss is the best. I'm like, well, not really. I mean, it's, it's a good method depending on who it is. And then other people are like, well, I thought you said sustainable slow fat loss is always the best and the best and most sustainable way to get results. Yeah, for some people it is, you know, and it's so different. And I think um, I'm interested in the study, but I've listened to the uh, so many conversations of, of respected coaches and, and scientists and researchers and stuff kind of leaning one way or the other and, and like mm-hmm. what's best. Um, and I've actually seen a lot more surprisingly, uh, and this is just from me, what I've observed, a lot of research actually do lean towards that aggressive approach um, for shorter durations uh, from a point of just getting them out of the diet sooner, which I think has merit. But I also think there's always value in listening to people who actually coach people because some of those research researchers don't coach a ton of people. So they talk about what would work best in a study, but you're like, have you had anybody adhere to that aggressive of an approach for long enough to actually make notable changes? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's actually really funny because, so I, I go to conferences with a lot of these big researchers and oh, it was, must've been a year ago. We were, we were, someone was pitching their clinical trial design and they put it up there and it's this exercise, like um, aerobic exercise thing where they slowly increase the, um, the speed of a treadmill or something. And like the, the calories need to go up, your heart rate needs to stay in a certain zone. Um, and so I, I looked at the guy and I was like, have you like literally tried this? Have you gone down on a treadmill and tried this protocol? He's like, no. I was like, you should go try it. Cause I did. And I about died. And these people are like 65 years old. So it, it's interesting um, to see some scientists who have never like coached yeah. or even been around and applied this stuff to just like the, the protocols they come up with is really odd. Well, a good example of that too is actually, um, you remember like Tabata, like a Tabata protocol. That yeah. was, I remember that being really popular because a study came out, I believe in Japan where they did this Tabata protocol and it was like 20 seconds of max intensity work and like 10 second rest. And, and you don't do very many rounds, it's like eight rounds, it's less than, just under four minutes, right? Three minutes, 50 seconds. And I was like, that's the way you got to go. And then like, when you try to keep your intensity that high for 20 seconds with a 10 second break for eight rounds, like even as a person who like back when I, when this came out, not only was I lifting, but I was playing in a men's league soccer. So I was actually like really aerobically conditioned. It was so hard. Like there was just no way I was going to like keep my stamina, let alone the gen pop people that I was trying to coach. Right. So I think that that's another good example of like, okay, like wh- why do they think there's benefit here and how can we manipulate that to be more feasible? You know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And that's, you know, that's where we come in. Just kind of, yeah. you know, figure stuff out for people. Exactly. I love it, man. Uh, that one went really well. I think it's actually, it was a blessing in disguise that we had to do it again. Cause I think it was good to review it again, especially after the blog came out and I had a chance to read it over um, for a yeah. second time. Uh, and I'm excited for the next one. So uh, for everybody listening, you can check out the blog of this in the link of the show notes. I'm going to link uh, Brandon's Instagram in the show notes too. Cause he posts a ton of infographics that are really, really valuable. Uh, and stay tuned for the next one where we dive into those studies that we just talked about. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering. And because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, 
head over to boomboomformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the nutrition hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at Cody at BoomBoomPerformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time. 